Today we're uh, talking about vision and what our church is about and where we're going and that sort of thing. It's always kind of good to know what you're uh, trying to accomplish, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, the greatest president of all time, Abraham Lincoln, do you know where he was born? Kentucky, that's right, Kentucky. Uh, I too was born in Kentucky, I don't mean to make any connection, but I mean... One time, um, there was a, a dad, and, and he was trying to motivate his kid, and, and the kid wasn't studying, you know, because, you know, school's about to start. We've got to motivate our kids to study. And so the dad was trying to motivate his, his son, and he, he said, the kid was talking about how hard his homework was, and this guy reminded him that, hey, you know, when Abraham Lincoln was a kid your age, he was studying his books by candlelight. The kid thought about it for a second. He said, yeah, but when Abraham Lincoln was your age, he was president. So, you know, uh, you're not doing too good either, buddy. All right, so we want to make sure we maintain focus. And parents can get out of focus sometimes. I read about last year, there's a, a mother in Minnesota, and uh, she forgot to take her kid to school, first day of school. She woke every, she had like five or six. She woke them all up, except this one, and she didn't notice him until she was making the beds. And so then she had to rush him to school. So it's easy to lose focus. So we're going to talk about focus and and honestly, this is kind of what every church is about, but your strategy for achieving this can be different. Wow, we are having a good time back there. <laughs> all of you are going, I wish I was there. Okay, all right, so I, I get that. All right, so this is Jesus. Red letters. I mean, when it's red letters in your Bible, man, you've got to perk up. Red letters. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We have the honor, those of us who are followers of Christ, to be a light in a dark world. That means we have this responsibility as followers of Christ to treat people well, to love people, to, to do the things that Christ would do, to um, give light, to, uh, good, to do good deeds. Not so that we receive a claim, but so that Jesus receives a claim. It is quite an honor, actually. Uh, Jesus decided that the best strategy to reach the world was the local church. That those of us who come to local churches, we have this opportunity to be light in a dark world. Now let me tell you, I heard this story about um, an organization that started in Nantucket, Massachusetts. This was in the late 1700s. Now everybody uh, that wanted to go long distances, if you, if you were near a coast, you would travel by ship like this. And, and it was frequent, we didn't you know, have, the rail system wasn't advanced and you didn't have you know, automobiles obviously in the late 1700s. And so to get from place to place, one of the most expedient ways to do that was via ship. The problem at the Northeast is that these ships would sail relatively close to the coast, and the coast was quite dangerous. It was rocky, you'd hit reefs and, those, reefs and those kinds of things. And so you had to be careful. And what would happen is oftentimes these ships would crash into things and they would sink, and loss of life was quite common. Now, what upset people about this was sometimes these ships were, you could see them from the coast, I mean, it wasn't like it was out in the middle of the ocean. They were within eyesight, and these ships would go down, and people would drown, and they were that close to the shore, and yet they perished. 
And so there were a group of folks who decided they were going to organize something, and it was called um, the um, Life-Saving Society. They, they even came up with these little barns, these little huts. They're called Life-Saving Huts. And in the hut, they would have uh, wood for a fire, and they would have little boats, and they would have kerosene for lanterns. And there would be somebody on watch on certain points on the coast, and they would look for these ships and if the ship sailed by, great. And if the ship stopped, it started going down. There would be a call out to people in the community to come be a part of the life-saving society. And they would get in their boats and they would sail out. Now, no pay. <laughs> there, there was no commissioning of them. They just decided to do it. Right? I mean, this is a big deal. They just decided to do it. And they had a motto, and they were, you know, when they were recruiting people, and they had a motto, and the motto was, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Now, that is the worst motto ever if you're trying to reach people to be a part of your society, right? I mean, you'd think that would be the most ineffective campaign slogan of all time. However, people flocked to this because... I think innately in our spirits, in our souls, we want to do something that is meaningful. We, we'd like to make a difference in the world. And, and what greater difference could a person make than to go out and try to save somebody else's life? So these became quite popular. And there were life-saving societies around the coast. It started in Nantucket, but they, they kind of spread, and there were these life-saving groups everywhere. Now, what's interesting, a few years into this, there was something called the United States Coast Guard, which was established. And all of a sudden, it seemed that there was less of a need for the life-saving societies because, well, I mean, the Coast Guard, those guys are trained, and they're paid, and that's what they do. And so, life-saving societies sort of decided that wasn't what they were going to do anymore. They weren't going to save lives anymore. But here's what's super interesting about it. They, um, they couldn't bring themselves to disband. So they kept meeting. They, they met for dinners. They would talk about community accomplishments, those sorts of things. Uh, they would enjoy each other's company. They just stopped saving lives because that was the job of the professional. And I think it's kind of a metaphor for, for churches because Jesus said, you... Y'all, if, if he was southern, he, he would have said, y'all are the light of the world. And, and it's our responsibility. The funny thing about churches is, there are churches that have decided, really, this isn't what we're about anymore. We still want to meet. Uh, we want to enjoy each other's company. We're going to stay busy. We're going to have little things going on for us. But we're not about life-saving anymore. Funny thing about the Nantucket Life-Saving Society, today it's still there except it's a yacht club. Yacht, yacht clubs aren't the same as life-saving societies. There's nothing wrong with a yacht club, but you know what yacht clubs are. They're, they're a place for the people who are in the club. If you're in the club, you get to set the standard. You get to say, uh, what are the admission requirements? And, and what is the dress code? And what are we going to do with our time in the yacht club? The yacht club exists for people in the yacht club. Nothing wrong with a yacht club, except it's quite different than a life-saving society. 
A yacht club exists for the sake of the people in the club. A life-saving society exists for the people not in the club. There are two ways of doing church. You can do church for the people in the church, or you can be a life-saving church, you can be a light church, and you, you can do church for the people not yet in the club. It's always been a struggle. Je- Jesus faced this. Now, there was a time, J- Jesus goes to the temple. Look, look at this. On reaching Jerusalem, this is where the temple is, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. <laughs> now, it would be like in our foyer, somebody, um, they offered animal sacrifices, or you had to offer an offering. You had to have the right money. Now, we don't exchange money a lot here because we're an American and we all have American money. But if you go to Europe and you go from one country to the next, uh, they, have, they used to have different monies. Now they have the euro, but that's kind of going away. But let's just assume it used to be the way it was. And you go from, to Belgium and you'd have a Belgian money. And you go to the Netherlands and you'd have a Netherlands money. And you go to Switzerland and you had the franc. And you go to Germany and you have the Deutschmark. And, and so every place you went, you had to have the right currency. And you would exchange this for that so you could spend there. That's kind of how it worked. Well, in Jerusalem, people would come from other countries to offer an offering at the temple, but they might have the wrong money. So they needed somebody to exchange the money. And so what you'd find in the temple courts were people exchanging money so that people could offer the right, by the way, with an, at an exorbitant rate. Or they would have animals for sale for sacrifice. It was quite a racket because the people, the, the, the priests who got to judge the animal, you might bring one. Let's say you came from far away and you, you walked your sheep into town. And they would look at the sheep and they would say, no, this one isn't quality enough. You're going to need to buy one from one of the merchants who would sell you one at an exorbitant price. And then they would take that animal that you brought and they would put it back and then they would put it in the pen for the next people. It was quite, quite um, immoral. And this is what Jesus found. And so he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And and he taught them. He said, is, is it not written, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You you have to understand how this thing sets up. I forget. I have a, oh, look at my laser. Ah, Every, every once in a while, I'll get a laser picture, and this is the best. I can put your eyes out right now. I, I want you to know, I'm not doing it. There's the inner court. That's where, like, the big stuff happens. But not everybody could go in there. Only the high priest once a year. You know, it was kind of exclusive. And this part, you know, the Jewish people could go in there. And this big part out here, it could hold hundreds of thousands of people, by the way. This is what Jesus, this is the place where Jesus drove the people out. It was called the court of the Gentiles. This, this is where, if you weren't Jewish, you got to hang out here. Oh, went, hit, push the wrong button, sorry. You got to hang out here if you weren't Jewish. Because God wanted everyone to have access to God. And you might not be able to go into the inner parts, but you could stay here. And what the people who were selling animals and exchanging money, what they were doing was, they were saying, we don't care about those people. We exist for us, for the worship of God, for the Jews. And Jesus found this extremely abhorrent. And he drove people out. I mean, 
Sometimes we see Jesus, as, we, we picture him as kind of meek and mild. Any brother that can, can separate a person from his money, he is a bad boy. I, I'm going to tell you. Jesus fashioned a whip and he went in there and he separated people from their money. One guy against... Think... Um, think... Uh, Jesus, just in this one instance, as Arnold, right? Get your merchandise out of here. You know, the, you think about, you know, he, he went in there and he, he, he distributed there, he dispersed everybody because it, it was wicked to him that somebody would have, would have no care for people who were trying to seek God. The church is sort of the first organization that was ever invented for the benefit of those who aren't members yet. We, we are here to reach new people. Go and make disciples, Jesus said. And, and so, let's talk about what we're about, what we're doing. First, we exist to make disciples. Look at what it says here. Jesus came to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to do that today, by the way. Get to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's what's crazy interesting about America today. USA Today, a couple of um, months ago, did an article, and, and the title was, More Americans Customize Religion to Fit Their Personal Needs. Um. George Barna talks about this in one of his latest books, and, and this is his quote. We are headed toward a day when we, as a nation, will have 310 million people with 310 million religions. What, what we're doing is we're taking the stuff we like, and we're, we're keeping it, and we're not keeping the stuff we don't like. So if Jesus says, um, love your neighbor as yourself, and, but you have a bad neighbor, you just sort of go, well, I don't like that one. It's like going to the buffet, you, you take the stuff you like and the stuff you don't like you just ignore. And people are doing that with religion. Now, religion is, people gravitate toward it because it's comforting and uh, uh, it, it makes you feel good. But when you get Jesus, you get all of Jesus. And when you get the Bible, you get all the Bible. And you get all the teachings of the scriptures, even if you don't like those teachings. Um. Our ambition is to speak the truth in love. So there's truth found in Scripture, and we talk about it, but we try to do it in a way where people understand, you know, we're not against anybody, but we are for the truth. And our ambition is for you to know the truth. Now, Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, not just the stuff you like, because there's stuff in there that you don't always like. And here's what's... Too many people have made this out to be rules. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded is the most freeing thing in all the world because it gives you a sense of peace and joy and comfort. And I can, I mean, I can love my family and I can love my life and I can love people around me. I mean, this is the objective of teaching them everything I've commanded. The second thing we do, we're trying to create as a church an inviting environment. And there's a text that we use to sort of help us understand this. Be wise in the way you act toward those who are outside the Christian faith. Make the most of your opportunities. One of the greatest opportunities that we have 
or on Sunday mornings. It's strategic. It's an opportunity for us to impact people um, in, a, in a specific way. We speak the truth in love. We make people feel welcome. That's what we do. Because planning is, we, we plan Sundays specifically. We try to do certain things. But planning is important. I, I mean, you know, we all plan. I, um, uh, several years ago, I, I got a life insurance policy. That's planning, right? I'm planning ahead in case something were to happen. And I remember coming home, and my girls, a couple of my girls, they were really little. And I forget which one asked me, but, but I had a Band-Aid on my arm because they had taken, you know, they kind of taken some blood, and they were checking, and it kind of worried her. You know, little kids and Band-Aids, they kind of want to know what the story is behind the Band-Aid. And she said, you know, Daddy, what's that about? And I said, well, honey, you know, it's hard to explain life insurance to a kid, but I, I was trying to explain it. Um, I'm look, trying to get a, a policy uh, so that if something were to happen to me, and now we don't think anything's going to happen, but if it were to happen, you're kind of trying to plan ahead. If it were to happen, then you, you, you and mommy would receive some money that would help you since I won't be here to make money. And she, you know, she, but man, you get, she got worried. And she said, well, how much money? <laughs> I said, well, 500000 And she thought about it, and she said, for each of us? I mean, it's kind of like, then you're, then you're afraid to go to sleep, uh, you know, but. Um, planning for people to come who might not look like us, who might not act like us. That, this is what we want to be accepting. Again, we don't change the message, but we certainly make certain that folks understand uh, they're welcomed here. This is our ambition. What's super interesting, I, mean, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but in Matthew 10, Jesus, there's a list of Jesus' disciples. Twelve of them. Almost everyone, it's just their name. You know, Peter, James, John. Two exceptions. There's a guy named Simon. He's called Simon the Zealot. That is, that's his political affiliation. That would be like saying, you know, Jimmy the Republican or, you know, John the Democrat. It, it's, it was Simon the Zealot. Now, you have to understand, the zealots were, um, the, the Romans occupied the Israelite territory. So if I'm a Jew, I'm, I'm, I'm an Israelite, I don't like my country being occupied by another country, especially Rome. The Romans, they issued taxes and they, they you know, you weren't free. You weren't free because you lived under the thumb of the Roman government and the zealots hated this. They, they didn't just hate it. I mean, they, they felt as if it was blasphemous to God. They were religious people, but, but they were, they were um, bent on eradicating the Romans, getting them out of their country. They were kind of cloak and dagger dudes. I mean, they would have a, if they caught a Roman soldier by himself, they often would have a dagger in their cloaks, literally, and they would, they would take people out. They were... They were not friendly to the Romans. They did not get along and did not want to get along. The only people the zealots liked less than the Romans were the Jews who worked for the Romans, tax collectors. Because to them, I mean, it was like a traitor. They too were blasphemous. I mean, God couldn't even look at these guys. Now, the two exceptions to the rule of people who were Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealots, Matthew, y'all know what he did, tax collector. All right, (laughs) imagine the first meeting 
The 11 disciples are hanging out. Judas, Peter, James, John, Simon the Zealot. They're talking politics. Romans stink. You know, that kind of thing. Down with Rome. And Jesus says, hey boys, we have a new disciple. Matthew. He's a tax collector. Now, I see in my mind's eye Simon's face going flush. He either got red or he got white. I, I can't figure out which one I think it happened. His sworn enemy, the, the one on, you know, if you got a hit list, he was on the hit list. J- Jesus put them together. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's like it wasn't just a little misunderstanding. They really didn't like each other. I mean, the zealot would have hated to be in a room with a tax collector. I, I mean, you can't, I'm not even sure we can, I don't think there's a, <laughs> I, I, can't, I couldn't come up with a current illustration to express how horrible that would have been for the people involved. And I'm, I'm relatively certain Matthew probably didn't like being in a room with a guy he knows is likely to off him if, if he gets along with him. And yet Jesus brought this kind of diversity to the table. See, we have to understand something. You don't have to agree with people in order to love people. We're told too often in our society, if you don't agree with me, you don't love me. Well, that's, that's not from Scripture. I don't have to agree with you to love you. I don't have to approve of what you do to love you. Because you, you are a, an individual who Jesus died for. You are loved. And it's my responsibility to love you like Christ loves you. I don't have to agree with you to love you. It, it's called making a sacrifice. Simon the Zealot had to make a sacrifice emotionally to be in a group with Matthew the tax collector. He had to. Matthew the tax collector had to emotionally make a sacrifice to be in a group with Simon the Zealot. Why do you sacrifice? Parents, why do you sacrifice? Why, why do you buy braces instead of a boat? Because you love your kid, right? Why do you watch Disney instead of Die Hard? Because you love your kid. Why do you go to Chuck E. Cheese instead of Chili's? Because you're stupid. But, but you love your kid. You love your kid. That's why. You love your kid. So we make sacrifice because we love people. Thirdly, this is huge. We have this ambition of bringing God's word to life. It's kind of a, has a double meaning. We want to bring it to your life and we want to bring it alive. We want to make sure it's living and it makes sense to you. Tomorrow is the eclipse. Very exciting. Everybody excited about the eclipse? I am fired up. Uh, I can't wait to read the stories of people who looked through the wrong glasses. I, I mean, I, I just I can't imagine that that's not going to happen. And our Greenville City officials, they came up with some stuff. I don't know if you've read this, but I'm going to help you. Do not, this is official from the Greenville County, and I'm not even making it up, although it sounds made up. Do not gather on rooftops. Gathering on rooftops of most buildings could result in the roof collapsing. All right, so. We were going to have a party, but now no. Uh, we canceled it. Commercial and residential decks and porches and balconies are also in danger of collapse. Therefore, manage the weight of the people on your deck. All right. Miss Jones, how much do you weigh? I mean, can you imagine that going down? Are you going to do that? Uh, sorry, you got to step off. You know, uh, we're a little over the limit. All right, that's what it says. Um, 
<laughs> Do not view the eclipse or wear eclipse glasses while driving. All right, now, that's really important. Super important. Don't stop in the roadway or stop on the side of the road to view the eclipse. So if you're driving, you can't just stop. Uh, that, that's, that's really, really good advice. Now, planning for your family. Seriously, I'm not even... Buy groceries. <laughs> it's like it's going to snow. Uh, buy groceries and fill your car up with gas before the weekend. We kind of missed it, but I guess you can do it on the way home. Refill prescriptions ahead of time so you will have needed medications on hand. Determine how you will communicate if, your cell, if the cell service goes down. Identify a meeting location in case you get separated from one another. I can't tell if we're having an eclipse or North Korea is going to attack. I can't quite tell what we're talking about here. Now, the thing about the eclipse. The eclipse is the sun gets between you, I mean the moon gets between you and the sun. That's what the eclipse is. It's really not that complicated. The sun, the moon gets between us and the sun. And it's kind of a metaphor for, if we look at God's word as shining light into our lives, things can get between us and God's word. Public opinion, um, you know, your feelings, that sort of thing. But, but the Bible says this about God's word. It's living and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates our spirits as far as the soul and spirit joints and marrow. It's able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. Here's what you need to understand. Just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And just because you feel it doesn't mean it's right. There's a verse I go to. It is kind of my, one of my go-to verses in Scripture. The heart is deceptive above all things. I can and have talked myself into things that I knew weren't right, according to Scripture. You can fool yourself into thinking something's right when you know it's wrong. The heart is deceptive. The, the theme song of the heart is deceptive. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Well, if loving you is wrong, it's wrong. I mean, you know... There's right and wrong. The heart is deceptive. So, our ambition. One of the reasons we went through Philippians, <laughs> and it took 28 weeks or something. I mean, it took a long time through Philippians. But the reason is, let's talk about everything in Scripture. Let, let, even if we don't like it, let's deal with it. Because there's stuff in here that's difficult to do. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean you don't do it. You talk about it, you figure it out. We talked about generosity, I think, a couple of weeks ago. That's not always easy. And yet it's what God wants us to do, and we talked about it. So that trying to bring God's Word to life. Fourthly, we're encouraging people to get into small groups and to find a place to serve. Now, again, this is probably not immediate. If guests come in, let them be guests for a while. But those of us who are part of this church, look, we need to find a place to belong. Because believing and belonging go hand in hand. I mean, everybody needs a group. You gotta, we, we need each other for encouragement and we need each other for accountability. Every great weight loss program there is out there has these two elements. Encouragement and accountability. If you're in an addiction recovery program, they have these two elements, accountability and encouragement. It's scriptural. The Bible tells us 
Encourage one another and build each other up. We're to encourage. We're to be accountable. You have to have people in your life who will tell you the truth, even if the truth isn't pleasant. Um, we have a great relationship. I have three daughters that are older. Uh, Elise is right here, but we have three older daughters, and they're all away. One's in Michigan, one's in Tennessee, one's in Kentucky. And when, when you have 20-year-old kids, they ask advice sometimes, or sometimes they don't. But, but if they're going to do something and you perceive it to be dangerous or you perceive it to be ungodly, you have an obligation as a Christian parent to say something. They don't have to listen. They're 20-something. They can do what they want to do. I get that. I can't, ma- I can't make my kids do anything they don't want to do. I can't make them. But, but I can be an encouragement to them. I, I can offer not, not naggy advice, but I can offer advice. Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It, it's good that they really respect their mother because she's much better at this than me. I don't always maybe word it the right way. But, man, their mom, she's really good. She's, uh, she's good for us that she's here and does that for us. There, there's a story in the Old Testament. Jacob and Esau, brothers, and um, they didn't always get along. In fact, Jesus, Jacob stole, uh, stole, stole um, connived Esau out of his birthright. And to, your birthright was a big deal. You got extra stuff, and it was a big deal. So Jacob and Esau, Esau didn't like being conned, and Esau got conned by his brother Jacob, and for a long time they lived estranged from one another in different parts of the world. And they scheduled a meeting after many, many years to get back together. And the night before they were to get back together, Jacob and Esau, Jacob had a dream. And he wrestled, it's an interesting, kind of odd story, I don't know exactly how to explain all of it, but it says... There's kind of different interpretations. He either wrestled with God or he wrestled with an angel. That's a weird deal, man. I don't care. Either way, it's odd. And it says that his hip was wrenched and he didn't walk right after that. He kind of got in a fight with God. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to lose that one. And, uh, and probably an angel. Or Either way, and, and it says his, his hip was thrown out of joint and he started walking with a limp from that moment on. He had this encounter with God, super interesting to me. Instead of being healed, he was afflicted, and he couldn't walk the right way. He walked with a limp because of his hip. Now, in this story, as, it, as it's told in Scripture, it says that Esau, now again, these, these are estranged brothers, they haven't seen each other for a long time, he sees Jacob from a distance, and yet now he sees Jacob and he's walking with a limp. And they come together and they embrace and all that animosity just sort of melts. And it doesn't say specifically in Scripture that the reason Esau's heart softened was because he saw Jacob with a limp. But maybe it was. Because here's what I know about people. When you see people who are vulnerable... There's a part of us, I think, that just has compassion. We, we sort of have this, this feeling like, oh, 
I need to help them. And we live in a society where we're told to rub a little dirt on it and shake it off. And if we're not careful, we come to church and we try to, you know, we try to employ limp management and we try to act better than we are. And we try to act more together than we are. So we don't want anybody to know we're struggling. And the very people that could be an encouragement to us, the very people that could be an accountability partner to us, we just sort of don't let them in. Because we're Americans and we, you know, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and those sorts of things. And honestly, there are times where you've got to have people in your life. Finding a place to serve, that's where you've... You have an opportunity to make connections with people. You know, you get to, let's say you're, you're serving in children's ministry. The beauty of that is you get to work with another adult, plus you get to serve children. It's a, it's a, it's a win-win. You get to be blessed with all that. Finally, we're doing things with creativity and excellence because God deserves our best. Now, does that mean we do it perfectly? We do not do it perfectly. But we try to do our very best. The Bible tells us in all your work you're doing, work it the best you can. Work as if you are working for the Lord, not for men. I mean, do your very best. Um, perfectionism can become an idol, so we don't want to go that direction. But we do want to make sure we do our very best. Every time we can do something, we try to do our best. And we try to be creative and that sort of thing. Let me end with a story Bob Russell tells about his childhood. Bob Russell's a great pastor. He pastored in Louisville for many, many years and he tells this story about when he was a kid, there was a, a house uh, that had their Christmas lights on. But what was odd for them is it's kind of at the beginning of the neighborhood, and they would drive by it you know, every day, and they kept their Christmas lights on into January. And you, you know, man, you know. Not only did they have them up, they had them on. And so February came, and they had their lights up and on. Now, I don't know about you, that annoys me. Because it's like, turn them off, you know. If you're going to have your lights up, if you're so lazy, you're not going to take them down. At least don't turn them on. Now, in Michigan, this is different. Let me tell you, it's all different. Because it snows from October to June. So you can't really take them down unless you want to die. So uh, we give you a pass, just don't turn them on. Okay, but this was Kentucky. It, you know, it snows, it's like here. It snows once a year and everything shuts down. So... The, they kept their lights on in, in January, in February. And in the middle of March, it kind of came clear. Because out in front of their house, they erected this huge sign. Welcome home, Jimmy. Because Jimmy had been off to war. And they wanted Jimmy to experience Christmas when he got home. See, when the Bible says to us, you are the light of the world. Light is this symbol of hope. If you're in a dark cave, if you're spelunking and you get lost, what's the one thing you want to see? Light. <laughs> you want to see light. If you're adrift on a raft in the ocean, what's the one thing you want to see? You want to see light. You are the light. We have this amazing responsibility, this privilege of serving God as lights in a dark world. 
it is quite an honor. And I'm, I'm thankful that we get to do this together. So let's pray, and we're going to take up an offering in a second, and, and then I'll give you a little instruction about what's next, okay? Father, we thank you for this day. We're thankful for uh, the privilege of serving you as lights in a dark world. Help us to shine brightly, not obnoxiously, but brightly. Help us to love with great compassion. Help us to help folks when we can. Help us to serve you with our whole heart. We want to be all in. We want to see our church as a life-saving society. Help us to do that, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.